Happy Resurrection Day. Welcome to the Grace Vineyard Podcast, where we are building growing communities of worshipers who are becoming like Christ, empowered to do His work. Just from the looks of it, most of you have been in the church before. Because if you haven't, and someone like dragged you here, does it, uh, um, I don't know, you you don't know what's going to happen, right? What are they going to do to me? Is this where they pull out the funny hats, you know? We're not going to do anything. Sorry to disappoint you. You look like, oh, I was looking for the hats. Um, yeah, so what, what Christians typically do is we love, to, we love to gather together and sing like we just did. All over the world, always, there's always music in following God. In fact, I believe, I'm, I could be possibly wrong, but... I'm almost positive. Now I forgot to study this. I think every single culture on the planet, whether it seems modern or it seems like someone go, oh, that's like the Stone Ages, you know, some lost area where there's been no exposure to the civilization that we know. Every culture has music. Isn't that amazing? People were born to sing. Also, there is no culture that does not have worship. Every culture... Every group of people on the planet looks to God, or gods, or a god, or multiple gods, different versions of people trying to find God, but everyone seems to know that there's something out there, something bigger, something that's the creator. Every culture, the way that the Bible describes it is this, the Bible says God has put eternity in the hearts of people. And the only way to not have eternity in your hearts is to suppress it and to try to convince yourself something other than the truth that there is something beyond what we have here. We all know it. We all know it. So we, we Christians, we come together and we sing songs of love and adoration and response to a God that we believe exists and that is present. And I know if you stop and think about it, and if, if you're not someone who believes in God or think about someone who doesn't believe in God, it's kind of funny that we think there's an invisible man here, right? We actually believe there's an invisible being in the room. And we're not crazy, or we're crazy. And he exists, and he interacts with us. And he listens, and he loves he responds to us. That's, that's what we believe. And we say he, but in reality, he's neither he nor she. He's way beyond gender, but that's just what we've done forever. Actually, the Bible teaches that God created humans in his image, male and female. He created them. So he just, he's so big and beyond. But on this day, we celebrate something that changed eternity for everybody. East, I, I'm going to, oh, I didn't tell you the rest of it. So Christians get together, they sing, and then usually someone like me gets up and talks, and talks about usually things from this, this library. This is called the Bible, and it's actually a library of 66 books, if you didn't know, written over a period of, I think, like 1,500 years. All sorts of authors, but one unifying story that goes all the way through it. And so usually we come together and someone tries to maybe inspire or instruct or teach or exhort or challenge or, you know, all those words from the Bible. And that's what I'm going to do a little bit today. Now, if you got dragged here by a friend, 
that made you come to Easter Sunday, because that's what Americans do. They go to church at least on, Christian Easter, on Christmas and Easter. Um, well, I guess I should just like lay it out, <laughs> what Christians are about, what their secret plot is. Because it turns out that everyone who has become a Christian, by the way, no one is born a Christian. Everyone becomes a Christian at some point because like a light goes on and they begin to believe that this story about a man who claimed to be God 2,000 years ago, Jesus, who claimed to be the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy, the Messiah, that he came to rescue the planet and that we can know him. And then on this day, we celebrate the day that everything changed. And so sometimes people will come to a gathering on an Easter Sunday and say, yeah, I know this story, there's Jesus, and you think he died, and then he rose again, and I don't know if I believe that, but okay, but what does that have to do with me? Why is that significant? And I, I just, I, I hope to, in my own little way, talk about why... Easter, Resurrection Day, is significant for me and why it might be for you, too. And this, I think, what I have to say uh, will apply to all of us. Whether you're an old-time follower of Jesus, whether you're a new follower of Jesus, whether you're someone who is not a follower of Jesus and maybe you're thinking about learning about what Jesus has to say, seeing if you can weigh it, see if it's true or not, I think it might apply to all of you. So for me, Easter is significant because I'm celebrating the day that everything that robs me of the good life has been defeated. And I now have the means to live life in view of heaven and tasting of heaven here and now before it even arrives. Easter does all that. Well, the, the, the kind of the full story of the cross, crucifixion, and Easter, the day Jesus rose from the dead. Everything that robs me of the good life, of a, a vibrant, joy-filled life, I think that's what you all want. If not, you need a psychiatrist because everyone wants joy. Or maybe we all need psychiatrists, so I'm not putting that down. I believe therapy is awesome, so don't hear that. But everything that robs me of a joy-filled life, of a, a life that is just saturated with love, a life that is filled with peace, a life that's empowered by hope, a life that's inspired by faith, those are the key elements of the really good life, filled with joy just saturated by love, fully at peace with God and people. Tranquilo, we would say around California. Tranquilo, peace. Hope, hope for a better tomorrow. A life saturated with hope and faith that inspires and gives vision for the future. That is a life worth living. And that kind of life has been robbed from people. But on Easter, 
we believe that the Son of God came and defeated everything that robs us of that kind of life so that I can enter into that kind of life and I can live now with heaven in my view and experiencing the taste of heaven right now. Is that, did you follow all that? Was that too many words? I know this. I talk a lot with long sentences. So sometimes I check in and go, did you follow that? Because that was a lot of words, right? Okay. So if I do that, just look at me and go, yeah, it's cool, Ron. Tranquilo. So. <laughs> kind of on the, the tail of that, that actually what I just described happened at the cross. That's when all the enemies were defeated. On the day of the resurrection, something was inaugurated because this Messiah to come, the prophecies about him promised that he would not only die and rise from the dead, but that his rising from the dead would be the beginning of the resurrection of all of creation, that he would make all things new. That every bit of sorrow and sadness, sickness, death, mourning will one day be put away. None of it will remain, and he will recreate earth in its original design. And he'll make heaven and earth come together, where we will live in absolute joy and peace there will be no more injustice, no more war, no more sickness, no more mourning, and God himself will wipe away every tear from every one of our eyes, and we've all cried. God himself will wipe away every tear. And what the teaching that we believe about Easter is, is that on the day that Jesus resurrected, that was the first fruits of a harvest, a harvest that is to come where just like his body, though dead, was made alive and made new. All of creation, our bodies, this world, the environment will all be made new. And every loss will be turned around. And everything that's been wronged will be made right. So much so, it will be all put to right. So much so that in that day, we won't even remember what we've been going through in our days. It's an incredible hope. And Easter, Easter says that future has begun now. And because of the Messiah dying and rising again, I can enter into the taste of that future now before it arrives. That's why Easter is so good. Isn't that good news? So I'm, I want to talk about how that works, and I'm going to read to you one verse with three sentences, and it's, I bet it's one that almost all of us won't recognize. Isn't that weird of me to do that? Why would you do that, Ron? I don't know, because the other day I was praying about what to do, and I woke up with this verse in my mind. I said, is that what you want me to read? And he, I thought, okay. But I think when we, when we unwrap it, we'll figure it out. By the way, if you didn't know this, if you're kind of new to the Bible, the Bible's amazing. And we believe that it's written by humans, just like you and me. However, humans inspired by God himself, so that's what is written is fully human and fully divine, kind of like Jesus, fully human and fully divine. Somehow God wrote through people his heart's desires, his truths, his description of the world, his understanding of how everything works, and often, truth is packed tightly 
into a few sentences that takes some work to unpack. Have you ever experienced that? And you got to, oh, that wasn't easy. I didn't understand that the first time. This is one of those verses, I think. So you ready? You sure? Wait, are you ready? Okay. Oh. Well, thank you, Michael. You're like, I was ready 10 minutes ago. Get to it, Ron. I told you I talk a lot. Um, Lord, we want to ask you to help us. We're going to read some of your word. We come to the text of the scripture with faith that it is inspired by God, that there's truth to be learned so that we can understand and enter into the life you have for us. Please help us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the passage of Scripture. It comes from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. It's 1 Corinthians 10. And I'm just pulling a few sentences right out of a, a, a kind of a discussion he's having with the, this, these Christians. And I'm not going to tell you about all that discussion. I'm going to just tell you about a truth that he just plops down in the middle of a discussion as if we all know it. And it's one, of, it's one of those, don't you know that? And then you read it and go, no, I didn't know that. So here's the scripture. Is not the cup of thanksgiving... Oh, he's talking about communion. I should tell you that. You know, when we, we do this living parable, Christians do, and most of you would know, if you've been to a Catholic church, you've been to the Eucharist. And in Protestant churches, they often call it communion, um, where you have some kind of a wafer that's representative of a piece of unleavened bread that's been broken, and you have some kind of a, a wine or a juice, that all is something that has tremendous meaning. And, and Paul's writing to people who have been practicing breaking the bread of communion and drinking the cup of communion. And he said this, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And I'm not sure I knew that. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Hmm. Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all take of, partake of one loaf. I want to unwrap those few sentences as best I can. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation? Those that have been around this church know we've been reading a part of the Bible where a certain weird Greek word has come out a lot. Koinonia, remember that word? Koinonia is a Greek word that, the Bible's written in Greek in the New Testament, that translates into English words like fellowship, um, communion. And in fact, if you read this and just read the Greek word, it says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a koinonia in the blood of Christ? Isn't that interesting? Koinonia means a partnership, a sharing, a complete sharing in purpose, in action, in heart, in worship. Somehow, the cup that we drink, when we drink it in faith as Christians who remember that Jesus, on the night that he was to be betrayed, to be persecuted the following day, sat with his disciples and he took unleavened bread in the Passover Seder. They were all Jewish, if you didn't know that, that Jesus was Jewish. And they were celebrating Passover. He took the unleavened bread and he broke it. And he said these mysterious words, this is my body given for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup and said, this cup of wine is my blood of the new covenant, 
poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. And he established that we would, people that follow Jesus from then on, would be part of a living parable. You know, a parable is a story that tells a story, a truth that's deeper than the story it tells. Jesus always doing parables. Communion is a living parable where we eat something, we drink something, and it has this great meaning. Back to what I'm reading. Is not the cup a communion, a koinonia with the blood of Christ? I think people often get lost at that point already. They hear the word blood of Christ. Ever sing a song and been washed in the blood? I mean, that's a weird thing to say, isn't it? <laughs> Do I mean when I say a participation in the blood of Christ that if I could have got a hold of Jesus and pricked his finger with a needle and got some blood out, there would have been some powerful property there? Maybe I could take that blood and drop it on a sick person and they'd be healed or take that blood and drop it on a dead body and it'd come to life? Because people talk like that. You know, you've been washed in the blood. I plead the blood. What does that mean, the blood? Is it like, the, is it magic blood? That, that actually is, is a pagan idea. Ancient pagans actually drank the blood. Sometimes in victory over, in war, drank the blood thinking they would get the life source of the people they just defeated. That's a completely pagan idea that somehow the blood itself is magical and has some, you know, essence of life and power. No, when we, when we say that word, this is important to understand because if it's confusing to you, this might just open up a lot. The word, the blood of Christ in this context, in, in all through the scripture, is um, shorthand. It's a figurative shorthand for the life of Jesus poured out in death as a sacrifice. Whenever you see the blood of Christ, what you really are hearing is Jesus, the Son of God, has poured out his life in sacrifice. And out of that, there is newness of life. That was at the cross. He poured out his life. The blood of Christ speaks of the cross. If you... I'm just going to switch gears and then bring it back into what this blood is about and how we participate in it. Can you picture a, um, a branch on a grapevine, a branch with beautiful clusters of grapes? Can you picture that? If I bring some shears and cut the branch off, immediately, although you can't see it, immediately that branch begins to die because it cannot live without the source from the vine. The life that comes through the vine feeds the branch, and that's where the grapes grow. It's a picture of all of life, and it's really a picture of the problem of the world that we're in. Something has to happen. If you wanted that branch to grow and flourish, it would somehow have to be put back into the vine to get the life. There's a funny word that we hear a lot that is like that. And the blood of Christ, the life of Christ poured out, accomplishes that. Something that's been separated and comes back together as one, the word of that process is atonement. And the blood of Christ's power is its power to make atonement. Have I gone too far for you? Is this getting too weird? This is, this is powerful truth if we can comprehend it. And I get this idea... Well, 
from some Bible stories that I'm going to, or one Bible passage in the Old Testament that I'm going to read. But I need to take that picture now and broaden it to kind of a history of the whole world. You, you still with me? The, the Christian worldview is that God created this world perfectly with the potential for the multiplication of perfection. Perfect in every way, kind of like I was describing heaven to come, where there is harmony and love and joy and flourishing and productivity and wisdom. And God created humans, and he made this world that we could live in with the potential to just burst out in life and love and joy and creativity. And he had an issue because for that world to exist, the supreme ethic of that world is love. Love from God, love to God, love from each other to each other. And here's the danger that God was willing to risk. If there is to be love, there has to be freedom to choose or reject love, or it's not love. If I created a robot and said, I've designed you to love me, it will love me because I've programmed love into it, it's not love. Love has to have the option to reject love, or it's not love. It has to be willing. And this, in simple ways, to me, answers the question that so many people pose. If there is a good God who's powerful, why does he let evil happen? Uh, why, if there is a good God and people were praying, and he's powerful, did he let Putin run into Ukraine and murder and destroy and rape and pillage? There must not be a God that's good and powerful. Either he's powerful and not good, or he's good and not powerful. But clearly he can't be both, therefore I don't believe in God. Have you ever heard anyone say that? It's, it's the ancient argument. What they're really saying, if you just stop for a second, is if I were God and I were good and powerful, this is the world I would create. But they don't know that there's a higher wisdom. Because the world that God created is the best world that could be, but it's risky. So, so God puts the first people, husband and wife, Adam and Eve, into a perfect garden, and he puts before them the opportunity to willingly choose to love him. And he places a tree in the garden, many trees for food that are delicious, but he says, there is one tree, and I want you to trust me about the tree because you love me. I want you to willingly choose to trust me about the tree and not eat of it. Because I guarantee you, the day that you eat of it, you'll be like that vine cut off from the life source, and you will die. Do you know the story? And he allowed a tempter to be in the garden. Because for the world to be all that it can be, it must have love. And for love to be all that it can be, there must be choice. This is the perfect world. God didn't make a mistake. So he allows the tempter to come in. The tempter comes in and says, don't believe God, don't trust him and don't love him because he's not being honest. If you'll eat the fruit that he says you shouldn't eat, 
you'll actually become like God. Wouldn't you like to be in charge? Wouldn't you like to be like God? And they looked at it and they said, I think we'll listen to the snake and disobey the God that's been loving us. And when they did, they were cut off. They needed atonement. They, see, they were separated. And immediately, literally, all hell broke loose. All hell broke loose on this planet. And all of the trouble that you and I experience today, all of the injustice, where so often the rich take advantage of the poor, or the powerful take advantage of the weak, where we have legal systems that are anything but just, where there's just so much evil and hatred and trouble in this world. It all started there, people cutting themselves off from the source of life, withering and dying. The world we live in is in trouble. I'm still talking about he that drinks this cup participates in the blood of Christ and why the story of Easter makes sense to us. You still with me? Am I? You're all following me? Okay. So, so we have this history, and God also is all-knowing. Before he ever created anything, he knew what people would do. So before he started, he already had a fail-safe built into the system. You ever heard of a fail-safe? Didn't they have one of those in Jurassic Park? <laughs> it didn't really work, though. But God's, God's fail-safe is not like Jurassic Park. <laughs> I shouldn't go there, huh, Paul? He, he said, I'm not going to be like the gods of deism. Have you ever heard of deism? Around the Enlightenment, around the revolutionary period. Thomas Paine was a, was a deist who believe that there is a God that's all-powerful that creates, but he creates, puts some natural law in place, and runs away and has nothing to do with the creation. God is not that God. He's also not the gods of paganism, where God isn't outside of the world, but he's actually just part of the world and part of the problem. Or they, the gods. No, he's the God who is outside of the world, all-powerful, but not aloof, He's ready and willing and able to break into this world and rescue us at any time. And when he created this world with the potential for the multiplication of perfection because of love and the ethic of love and free will and the risk that we would destroy everything, he said, I myself will in the future become a man and I will enter their world and I will take upon myself all of the wickedness and evil and sin, I will consume it into myself as I let myself be killed on a cross. And my blood will be the at-one-ment. My blood will be the atonement for all of the sins of all of the people of all time. And I will make a way to rescue them. He's not aloof, and he's not a God who was, if he was good and powerful, he wouldn't let any of this happen He's a God who's good and powerful and loving, lets it happen, and then swoops in himself to take it upon himself and get in the mud with us and clean us up and take all of the sin and destroy it so that I can celebrate on Easter that everything that robs me of life that is full of love and joy and peace and hope and faith has been defeated, and I can live the good life now because of what Jesus did on the cross and what he did in the resurrection. Is that making sense? 
Okay, so has anyone ever heard of the universal law of gravity? You all went to school. Do you know that in this universe, there is a, there's an attraction between any two objects, and it's proportional to the mass of the objects and indirectly, indirectly proportional to their distance. So that's why we go around the sun, right? It's a universal law of gravity. Uh, no one really knows why. It just is, because God baked it into the universe. There's another universal law that's a spiritual law. The Bible teaches some spiritual laws, and it's the law of atonement. And it's one more verse. This is in the Old Testament where God is establishing the nation of Israel, and he's telling them how things are going to work, and he establishes something to let them see what Jesus is going to be like. And he tells them, here's just one verse, Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Now, that's a law that's discovered. No one really knows why, but it's baked into the universe. And the fact is, the atonement, the making at one of people with their God, is only accomplished through the shedding of blood. You can disagree with that, and you can disagree with gravity. And guess who's going to lose? You can, someone said, if you rub your hand against the grain of the universe, you're going to get slivers. This is the universal law. It's baked in. Blood was given for atonement. And so all through every culture, every culture knows they did sacrificial sacrifice, take an animal, somehow put the sin of the worshiper onto the animal, and the bloodshed would make some kind of atonement. And that was always in place all over the world in some degree or another, but it all pointed to this. There was a day that would come when God himself would take on humanity and have blood and shed his lifeblood for the atonement of the world. Is this making sense? So that's what Easter is. It's the story of new creation being launched after the creator himself sheds his blood, his lifeblood, to make us one. This is why Easter is so significant to me. Listen to this little addition to the Easter story. Regarding Christ's resurrection on Sunday morning, Paul again writing, if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is of no use. But... Jesus Christ has been indeed raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all who have died, of all who have fallen asleep. For since, it's a powerful word, for since death came through a man, the resurrection, the new creation of everything will come through a man. As in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive, each in his own turn. I said firstfruits, that's a picture of a harvest. Christ, the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father. 
after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign until all his enemies are under his feet. The cross story of the Easter weekend speaks of atonement, the blood that we participate in when we do what we're going to do in a bit with communion. Sunday morning speaks of the resurrection and the new creation. And let me just read this from the last book of the Bible, a picture of what Jesus is about and what he launched on Easter Sunday, and he will complete when he returns. I heard a loud voice from heaven, from the throne. This is the book of Revelation saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Here's what I described earlier. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order has passed away. I love these words. My hope for living is fixed on these words. And my reason for believing these words is the fact that undeniably that no one has ever been able to figure out any other explanation for. Jesus died on a Roman cross. He was buried for three days, and on the third day he rose from the grave. There is no body. The tomb is empty. There's never been any explanation to describe those events other than he is who he said he is. He rose from the dead, and because of that, everything he said and everything he did is trustworthy in my opinion. I base my entire life on Easter Sunday. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, I would not be here today. I would have nothing to do with any of this. I'd be trying to find some kind of meaning somewhere in life. But Jesus did rise from the dead, so I know it's true that he shed his blood for me, so I know it's true that though I was severed from the vine, when I put my faith in him, somehow that work of blood makes me back one with the vine, and I'm now living in dependence on the source of life, God himself. And when the world, person by person, gets their life because of what he did on the cross, back connected to the source of life, it all starts flowing again, and death is reversed, and life is started. That's, does that make sense at all? That's why Easter is so significant for me and for you. Because if you are not experiencing life, it's because you're not experiencing life from the source. You were created to live in dependence on God. When you try to live independently from God, making your own way, being the master of your own destiny, choosing your own course, you'll be living in death and it won't work. When you and I live connected to the source of life, which only happens by the source of life himself shedding his lifeblood, we put our faith in him, we get reconnected to the source of life and life starts flowing. That's why Easter and the, and the, the crucifixion are so important. Here's, here's that verse again. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body. So how, is it, how do I participate then in the blood of Christ? The blood of Christ, which means his life outpoured for me in sacrifice to make atonement 
for all of my sins and all of your sins and all of our sins combined, which have left this world reeling. What does it mean? It means that I personally experience at one minute with God. And then I join him and partner with him in bringing the reality of this atonement, this making at one with God, to everyone around me. I'm now participating in the blood of Christ. Did you follow that, or should I say that again? This is significant for every one of us. When we participate in the blood of Christ, we experience his life, and we join him in bringing that life to the world around us. And this is God's plan to save the planet. That's his plan to save the planet. That's his plan to save the planet. It's begun and it's slowly growing. The second part we read was that we are one. We love each other to such a degree that the goodness and life of heaven itself is experienced in communities of people who've known Jesus, who've made, been made at one with God by the blood of Christ, and are loving and living out the reality of heaven to come. Many of us forget this part. We who are many are one loaf, for there's one loaf that we all participate in. Did you see that? When we live into this, when we understand it, when the light goes on, and we live day by day by the power of the vine, the branch and the vine, the power of the life flow into us, enabling us to love each other and love the world around us with the power of Christ himself to make everyone who's been broken off from the life source get back connected to the life source. <laughs> the curse is reversed. And life comes. I'm going to read to the, the band, you guys can come up because we're going to sing a closing song and do communion with the song. Um, two small passages of Scripture that describe this in another way, and I think it helps. If by the sin, the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, referring to Adam bringing sin into this world, if death reigned through that one man, how much more, this is you and me, Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through Jesus Christ? Did you hear that language? We were broken off and died because of the sin of one man that we were all born into that world. But when we come to the one man Christ by the blood that makes atonement and reconnects us to the source of life, we reign in life. Second thought, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? That's the cross. We are therefore buried with him through baptism in death in order that just as Christ came out of the tomb on the third day, we too may live a new life. That's resurrection life, and it is for here and now, and that's why Easter is so significant for me. And I hope it's significant for you.
Now listen, folks online and folks in the building. We're going to sing a song about Jesus' coming. And around the third verse, the, um, Amy is going to, she has the mic and she's going to lead us in taking the cup and the little wafer and celebrating the Lord's Supper. Hopefully with an understanding that what we are doing by drinking the wine and eating that little wafer is a parable to describe us participating, fellowshipping with the life of Jesus poured out for the atonement of the world, for the salvation of the world, that we can be at one with Christ and we can join in his project of bringing oneness and salvation to the entire world. If you're here and you're not living that life yet, today's your day. Jesus, the Son of God, created this planet and decided before he created it that he would be the one who would come in, join us, and take upon himself on the cross all of our sins. So that if we put our faith in him, we would be restored into relationship with God. We'd be made at one. We would receive at one minute atonement. He gave it all, but he still gives us free will. and says, you can choose to reject me. The universal law of the universe, there's only one way of atonement. The blood of the Messiah. You can receive that truth, or you can reject it. If you receive it, it's a simple matter of saying, Jesus, in fact, say this with me if you want, Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God who died for the sins of the world and then rose from the dead victorious. I believe your words that if I put my faith in you, you will make me alive. And I will be reconnected with the source of life, God himself. And I want it. I say yes. Someone taught me a new kind of prayer. It goes like this, Jesus, you're now the boss. Which is saying, Jesus, you're Lord. Jesus, you're now the boss of me. We hope you've enjoyed this message. This weekly podcast is available on our website, gracevcf.org where you can learn more about Grace Vineyard and our vision for people everywhere to know and worship God.